Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Wind Up Podcast. I'm your host, Mike of MTGA Wines, and we are diving into our February question and amp answer the answer episode. It's the mailbag. We are diving right in and trying to answer all the questions that have been submitted, or at least a handful of them that have been submitted over the last month uh, out at the winery, uh, through our social media accounts, just in general, and try and give you a little bit more insight into the world of the wine and hospitality industries. Uh, It has been Really, really interesting to see the questions come through over the last few episodes that we've posted. So we're going to be diving into quite a bit today. Uh, Before we do, a couple quick orders of business. Uh, Number one, we're posting on Thursday, February 29th, because it's a leap year and because we can. I figured normally we post on Wednesdays, but hey, we can only do a leap year episode every four years. So we're going to push it back a day and we're going to release it on Thursday, the 29th, because why not? Reasons. Here we are on a leap year day getting a podcast out and about. Uh, Number two, uh, thank you everybody who's been liking, sharing, subscribing to our social media accounts, uh, sharing the podcast with folks. Uh, I still am so thankful of everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. Um, For those that have a quick moment to throw a little star rating out there or write something nice about the show that you've been enjoying, that would be amazing. And it really helps with the algorithm and kind of getting it out and about uh, for other people to find. So thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, Please make sure you do follow us on all of our social media accounts. Uh, That's YouTube, Instagram, the Book of Face, uh, as well as the social network formerly known as Twitter. All of those are at MTGA Wines for more regular kind of winemaking, everyday updates, and the whatnot. All right, without further ado, let's get into it, shall we? Uh, This episode is always the question and answer episode. It's the last episode of the month, and we've been focused a lot on kind of the business side of the wine industry, uh, particularly the wine grape market over the last few episodes, um, as well as the overall quality of a few vintages that we have aging in the cellar that are going to start getting bottled up here in the next just week or so, actually. So we're going to be diving into a few of those questions, as well as uh, something kind of around the distribution world and how wines kind of make their way into restaurants, retail shops, and all that good stuff. So uh, for those of you that are looking for a particular topic, you can see them kind of time-stamped in the description of the podcast. So if you want to fast-forward or rewind to certain things to make sure you're hitting up the topics that are most interesting to you, please feel free to do so. Uh, You can see all that down in the, the description. So question number one. Uh, after breaking down how you can make, oh, wait, I completely misread that, man, I'm on my third cup of coffee and I still can't figure out how to talk. I completely bumbled the question and answer intro and I can't even get into the first question, but we're going to try that again in three, two, one, here we go. All right. After the grape pricing breakdown, how can you make a wine of a certain price point? Is it possible to target that and make it work? Oh, see, we can do it. We can get through it. I'm still going to finish this extra cup of coffee by the end of the episode, though. Uh, But yes, you can absolutely do that. In fact, that's how a lot of wines are made. Uh, You know, we, we 
talk a lot of trash about, you know, the two buck chucks of the world and kind of say, oh, well, it's, you know, these 999 wines and kind of what many consider to be kind of lesser quality or more simple or just kind of your bargain basement wines uh, that are mass produced. But realistically, much like anything in kind of the food and beverage world, things can be engineered, whether that's the production of them or the price point of them to make sure that they're capturing kind of a certain target audience. So if you're trying to make a $29.99 bottle of wine that's going to be, you know, in a bunch of retail change and restaurants and things uh, all around the country, yeah, you're going to be able to kind of sort through, you know, what grapes you want to be working with from what regions and will that actually fit into that price point. Uh, it can be challenging if you're trying to make, let's say you're trying to make a $29.99 bottle of Napa Cabernet, as we talked about in last week's episode, you know, Napa Cabernet, the cost of it, just your cost basis starts at about 15 bucks per bottle. So that means you have to now put in all the labor, you have to put in all the dry goods for, you know, corks, glass, label design, all your extra overhead. And can you stay kind of within that price point? Or are you going to surpass that and say, oh my gosh, you know, we're using new oak barrels. That means our cost is now up to $20 a bottle. Now we got to factor in all the packaging and everything. That's another $7 a bottle. All right, we're right up against, you know, we're at 27 bucks. Can we actually produce this wine and sell it for $29.99 and make it make sense? Maybe, maybe not. That'll be up to you and what you can kind of figure out. But it's pretty easy, you know, to just bypass that target depending on what you're looking at. Now, based on last week's episode and kind of the average grape prices, you could say, okay, well, maybe not Napa Cabernet, but I know I can buy Cabernet outside of Napa for maybe $2,000 a ton, $3,000 a ton, and I can cut that cost down by like a third. So all of a sudden now I have a lot more wiggle room to kind of hit a target price point when it's all said and done. So a lot of that gets taken into consideration, particularly when you're trying to get your wines out and about into like the distribution or restaurant world. Uh, it's also done in the direct wine business as well for wine clubs and allocation lists and things. But you know, if you're really trying to hit like a target market group, that's when you're really paying attention to your COGS, your cost of goods, to make sure that you're going to be able to hit it and not end up losing a bunch of money on the wine uh, you've been making. Uh, trust me, that's what I did for the first few years, is I lost money on making wine because my pricing was completely jacked up. I was literally selling wine below what it cost me to make it, and as a result, three, four years into it, I'm like, why is there just, why am I just like hemorrhaging money? And I actually finally took the time to put together a spreadsheet and say, all right, where is this going? And there were so many things I just didn't think of in terms of the costs that were associated with a wine business that I finally kind of plugged in and were like, oh gosh, like I completely, I completely messed up this price point discussion with myself. And it's, it's very easy to do. If you just try and do it arbitrarily, you can find yourself up a creek without a paddle really, really fast. Uh, you can also overprice a wine. You can see wines that are, you know, what you would consider very, very high end, or they're going for three figures or more that maybe people are having a tough time selling because they're like, hey, within our competitive set of where we want to be, we need to be at a certain price point if we're going to be making this style of wine. And all of a sudden, they're like, well, we have a lot of inventory sitting around, and it's a really high price point. Can we actually 
target this price point and make this work. So it kind of goes both ways. You can try to make a really kind of cheap and cheerful wine and maybe you kind of blow past those costs and have to increase that price. Uh, maybe you've made you know, too much of it and the market's kind of like saturated. There's a lot of, lot of factors that go into like this price point discussion uh, and what that cost of that wine is actually going to be for the consumer. Those of us who, you know, all buy and enjoy wines from local retail shops or wineries, uh, you're, you know, all of us are trying to, from the business side, you know, target certain things to make it work financially for us and our partners that we work with. So, you know, this is a huge, I'm not going to say point of contention, but a huge thing that wineries work with and around to try and make sure that financially, one, they're going to be all right, and two, that they can, you know, go through the sales channels that they want to, uh, whether it's the direct channel through, you know, retail sales at the winery, through the wine club, or you're going through distribution, the wholesale side of things, through actual retail shops and restaurants around the country. Uh, you can certainly target a certain price point and try and make it work. Absolutely. That's definitely something that's done all the time. All the time. Yes. All right. Question number two. Uh, what is the driving force behind Napa grape prices rising so dramatically? Uh, this is uh, directly from our conversation that we had last on last week's episode. Uh, for those that might not have tuned into that, it was a if you're a, a numbers nerd and you love a good spreadsheet, last week's episode was for you. Uh, we dove right into the thick of the California wine grape market and the report that we get at the end of every or beginning of every new year that kind of lays out exactly what wine grapes are selling for and the averages for every single region within California. And over the last even just, I think it was the last three or four years, Napa Cabernet alone has risen about 40% in cost. Uh, and over the last 10 years, or maybe that's the last 10 years, it was either the last like five or last 10 years. In either case, it's gone up pretty dramatically in a fairly short period of time, some kind of leaps and bounds. Uh, so when I mentioned actually after in question number one, where it's going to cost you, you know, $15 just to buy your grapes per bottle, uh, that's where that number comes from. The average price for one ton of Napa Valley Cabernet, and you know, one ton is 2,000 pounds, which makes you about two barrels of wine, probably a little bit more than that, just for those that are curious how that kind of trickles down into the production side of things. That's going to cost you about $9,000 on average in Napa. Uh, I also mentioned that the average price around the state of California, including the weighted average, you know, with Napa included in there, is about $2,100. So as soon as you move into Napa County, it's dramatically more expensive, more than four times more expensive for Cabernet grapes than it is typically around the rest of California. Uh, it's an interesting place to be when it comes to buying wine grapes in this day and age. But anyway, the driving force really behind that is quite simple. Napa is basically 150 square miles. It's not a super huge region. That might sound like a lot, but it's really not in the grand scheme of California. You know, we're a very small speck in this state when it comes down to it. And that also applies to how much wine we actually make. We only make, I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of like four to six percent, maybe up to seven percent of California's 
wine realistically like we are a literally single digit like fraction of the wine that comes out of California. So there's very low supply. And the reason for that is because maybe, I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 12 to 15% of Napa is actually planted to wine grapes. So even within that 150 you know, square miles, there's just a small portion of that that's even planted to grapes. So, I mean, just basic economics take over. You have a huge demand for Napa Valley Cabernet in particular, just Napa Valley wines in general and a very low supply. This is why you've seen, you know, great prices just skyrocket over the last, you know, decade or so. Um, and even more so, you know, over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, it's gone nowhere but up. Um, and that's really, frankly, the main reason. And, you know, if you talk to those of us who are buying grapes or on the winemaking side, you know, we're firmly of the opinion that the growers have had us kind of by the balls, apologize for the turn of phrase, but it's true, for way too long. Um, but very similar to, you know, other things economically, you know, they continue to kind of raise the bar on their prices. We continue to pay that price. We have not hit a ceiling yet. So why would they not raise their prices? Um, especially because the costs of farming and doing business have gone up as well. So they are trying to, like many of us, you know, have tried to account for just the rising costs of doing business uh, in Napa Valley. So, you know, there's obviously a lot of economic factors, supply and demand probably being the largest driving force, but you also have wine producers that frankly are stuck between a rock and a hard place. Uh, to give you a little bit of an example, you know, one of the growers we work with that I'm actually uh, having a lot of conversations with uh, this week and next week you know, I, in essence, have to take a minimum amount of grapes from them that they're designating. And they're saying, hey, if you don't take this, we're not going to work with you and we'll just sell the grapes to somebody else. It's that that's the situation. And I'm having to buy almost, you know, probably 25 or 30 percent more than I actually need. But in order to secure my fruit sourcing, I have to frankly just bite that bullet and say, all right, let's do business because I love this vineyard. I've been working with it for a long time and I want to make this work for both of us. Um, and that's kind of how it is that if you decide to opt out of a contract typically, and if you try, if you decide to pass on a certain lot of grapes in Napa, don't worry, the grower is going to be just fine. There's going to be someone hot on your heels that's going to take that fruit instead. So if you really love the vineyard you're working with, it frankly, it kind of behooves you to just stick with it uh, unless there's some sort of, you know, issue with that grower. Maybe their rising price is just way higher than the Napa average and it's a less than average, you know, vineyard. Uh, that's a conversation we had to have with our Merlot last year uh, in the sense that there was a lot of Merlot that was going for a lot more uh, in terms of the price. I didn't think it was particularly advantageous for us to pay that price, especially given the quality of the vineyard that we were looking at. So we opted to go somewhere else for our Merlot. And that's part of kind of just the, I don't know, the business discussion that you have to have when it comes to wine grapes and what you're doing, especially if you're a small producer like us that is buying your fruit and you do not have your own vineyard that you're farming. Uh, this is kind of the, you know, just the conversations you have to have this time of year as you're organizing these contracts and sourcing and all these other things. Um, so the demand for Napa Cab uh, in particular and just Napa Valley wines, uh, plus the low volume of them that are actually made, that's really the that's really the main driving force, I would say. Not a bad thing to have. It's great to be 
you know, the juggernaut in the room in terms of, you know, popularity when it comes to wine, but it does, you know, trickle down in terms of, you know, the cost of what we do on a day-to-day basis. Uh, actually, even to put this into a little bit more perspective, you know, we talk so much, I've talked so much about the, you know, how little wine is actually made in Napa, how little is actually planted in this area. You know, on top of that, we farm specifically for quality and not volume. We want to make the best wines we can, which means we're maybe on average getting three to four tons per acre. You know, we talked about that tonnage, you know, making about two barrels. So let's say on the high side, you're getting four tons or so an acre. That's eight barrels of wine. If you are moving into central California, you're probably getting six, eight, 12 tons per acre in some situations. So you're easily, you can easily get double the amount of volume. The issue with that though, is typically your quality starts to go down. You're not getting the complexities and the intensity that you might want. So, you know, you know, some have kind of looked at that and said, oh, maybe Napa's kind of shooting themselves in the foot. They just need to bulk up and make more wine. But all of us are sitting here like, yeah, but our wines are at this quality level that we have to maintain. If all of a sudden we start farming for just volume and yields, the quality is going to average out. It's really significantly, it's going to go down. So we are kind of stuck in this weird rock and hard place where we're trying to make the best wines we can. It's getting more and more expensive to do so. And you know, we're having to have, you know, very interesting conversations as an industry of like, all right, where's the ceiling to this? Because uh, frankly, it doesn't seem like we've hit it yet. It's going to be a very interesting, uh, very interesting rest of the decade to see if it continues or if there's any kind of slowing up for it. We'll see. We'll see. It's one of those things where I'm like, damn it, if I only had a crystal ball that could tell me what was going to happen, you know? It'd be so helpful. So helpful. All right. All right. Actually, in this same vein, question number three, and actually number four, where I'm going to kind of like loop these together because they're they're pretty good to go together. Uh, when preparing to purchase grapes, what does that when does that conversation happen? And what is that conversation like when you're negotiating it? So actually, right now, it's kind of plain and simple. Like right now, I'm working with all of my growers. We're talking about what yields might be looking like compared to last year, even though the growing season hasn't even started yet. We're trying to figure out exactly like how many grapes we want to be buying in terms of that tonnage we keep talking about. Um, And that conversation is happening right now. It typically is like January, February. That way, once the growing season starts uh, in the early spring, we're ready to just line it up and knock it down. Everyone's kind of on the same page. So I have a few more meetings uh, that we're in over the next just week or so to kind of finalize some of these details, sign these contracts, and get the ball rolling. Uh, As far as the conversations, um, luckily enough, they're very amicable. You know, in talking about kind of these wine grape prices and uh, farming practices and everything that can go into making a growing season happen and eventually getting a wine made, luckily, everyone that I've worked with, I'm very, I think I'm, hopefully this, I'm not an anomaly, but it feels as though it's always been very easy. Uh, It's a very just open and honest conversation of like, hey, here's where we're at. Here's where the average prices are at. Here's where our farming costs are. Here's what we're doing for you to make sure you get what you want. It is a very synergistic relationship. Um, Very typically between growers and winemakers, it is a, it is a, 
very center. It has to be a very synergistic relationship. We have to get great produce in the form of grapes to make great wine. It is a 50-50 relationship there. You can't make amazing wine out of subpar fruit, and you can't. And but you and you can also make pretty bad wine. Uh, from really great fruit if you screw it up. So you have to have this balancing act. And this kind of goes back almost to that, you know, hitting a certain price point conversation. Are you making a certain style of wine of a certain complexity and a certain price point? And how do you have to farm it? And, you know, how many tons of grapes do you need to achieve that? And all these other things. So uh, these negotiations are pretty quick and easy. It's usually just a quick coffee date, to be honest, and you hash things out, especially if it's someone, you know, all the growers we've been working with, we've been working with for years now, um, which allows us to have just really quick, frank conversations. We get to go and like walk through the vineyards and just talk shop, have lunch, grab a cup of coffee, whatever the case may be. It's a pretty, honestly, it's a pretty clean and easy process for us at this stage. And I think for many people, it's that way. That's like once you've been doing it for a few years and you have a few kind of reliable sources that you've been working with, you can just let it ride more or less and stay on the same page. Uh, there are things that can get a little bit feisty in terms of like, hey, you're taking this huge price increase based on this report, yet you've been charging me, you know, below the below average price. And now you're trying to make up for it. Like you have those conversations sometimes. Uh, maybe there's another buyer that's interested in that vineyard and you have to try and sort out, hey, I need to make sure I get what I need. And are they going to be buying that whole vineyard? Do I need to find a new source for my fruit? We've had we've gone through that conversation with people. Um, you know, there can be things that create issues, but frankly, they're pretty easy to troubleshoot. It's really not too bad all said and done, um, which is kind of nice. It's kind of nice. Um, but these conversations right now around this winter season, um, it's just part of the norm. This is just kind of your normal TCOB, taking care of business, uh, making sure that everyone's on the same page, that once you get into the thick of the harvest season, you're just lining it up to knock it down. So it's a lot of uh, planning and preparedness to breed success later on down the line. So you're not just flying by the seat of your pants, which is pretty nice. Uh, yeah, the conversations are easy. Luckily enough, they're pretty easy. All right into a slightly different topic uh why would a winery decide to distribute their wines or not so wow i mean there's so many so many ways you could go with this um it, it depends on the style of business that you want to do um let's do a little bit we're actually going to get into a little bit of a after this kind of grape pricing conversation and how that impacts kind of the end game of pricing for small wineries and even big wineries last week uh i highly again highly recommend if you're into the numbers game of businesses it's if it's fascinating just to see what the grapes cost and and you know what they've been historically we even found the one of the original reports from back in the 70s of what napa wine grapes were going for at that time so we were able to really do a deep dive on like hey here's like where things were here's where things are and here's how we're trying to work with it um and that really it's kind of the same conversation you know but a different avenue when it comes to distributing a wine so I'm going to see what, where do we, how do we want to tackle this? I, it's just a business decision. And really, frankly, it kind of comes down to how much volume you're producing. You know, once you're making a few thousand cases, that's typically a spot where you start seeing some wines like out and about in retail shops and restaurants. At least that seems to be the case. 
But realistically, this is kind of a I mean, this is kind of where I see it is like once you get to like that six or eight thousand case mark, that's when you have a more substantial like wholesale distribution arm to your business because you're making so much wine at that stage. And that's still very, very small in the grand scheme of the wine industry. But you're making enough at that stage where if you have a few markets, like a few states where you're selling your wine, maybe a couple of retail chains, uh, some great restaurants that you can move through those at a pretty good clip. You're probably not going to be in all 50 states. And if you are, there's probably certain states that only get like, you know, an allocated selection. Like, hey, here's your couple of cases for the year. Um, so you number one, you kind of have to make enough wine to distribute it, because if you're only making a couple hundred cases, it can be kind of tough. You know, it, it really can be um, on top of that. You know, if you're making a low volume of wine, let's say you're making a couple hundred cases of wine. You know, keep in mind that if you're selling to a distributor, you're selling your wine at, in essence, half off. So if that's a $40 bottle of wine, you're going to sell it to the distributor for 20 bucks because they need to mark it up and then sell it to the retail shop and restaurant that then mark it up and they sell it at kind of that. Well, the retail shop will sell it at, you know, that $40 price, theoretically. And then the restaurant will mark it up two and a half or three times because we've all seen restaurant lists. We know the markups are crazy, but that's also how they stay in business because the food's not making them any money. So they upcharge for their cocktails, they upcharge for their wine and all that other stuff. So, I mean, if you're making just a small amount of wine, let's do a little bit of like quick math here, right? Let's say you're making that, you know, $40 bottle of wine, right? So divide that by two, easy math, 20. I still have a calculator clicking in the background because I'm like, I know I'll screw this up and say something stupid and then people will laugh at me, you know? Hopefully it's at least entertaining for you. I don't be like, I'm so dumb sometimes. Anyway, so you're selling it to the distributor for 20 bucks a bottle. Let's say that bottle of wine costs you $15 to make, right? So subtract that 15 bucks from that 20. So your profit is $5 per bottle, right? You're like, all right, well, five bucks a bottle. Now we got to talk about the volume. How much of that are we making? And we mentioned 200 cases. Let's say you're making 200 cases. So a case of wine is 12 bottles. So you go five times 12 is 60 bucks per case, right? Times 200. That's $12,000 profit for your little wine business. Does that pay the mortgage, put food on the table, allow you to save it for retirement? Probably not in this day and age, right? So that's where that kind of economy of scale comes in, where it's like, okay, if you're making $5 a bottle, realistically, you're probably going to have to make five times that much to make that make sense, because that gets you to about that $60,000, you know, you know, salary kind of mark for you uh, to make a living at it. Um, so if it's kind of the hobby or like the pet project and you just want some extra like vacation cash, then maybe making a couple hundred dollars or a couple hundred cases of wine and selling it at a, a good price uh, through the wholesale side of things that could work. But are you going to make a living at that? Probably not. So that can help influence, you know, whether or not you're getting into distribution is if you're only making a little bit of wine, is it just a hobby and you have like a couple of key places that you're selling and it's like this nice little, you know, additional revenue stream where you make a little extra vacation money, a little extra scratch just to play around with? Sure. Why not? If you're actually trying to make a living at it and you want that wine business to be your full time job, that's a little tougher, right? So at that 
200 case mark, it's like, all right, well, maybe it behooves me to sell a little bit more of that, you know, through a wine club or through, you know, just sales at the winery. Because that way, if that wine cost me $15 to make, just an example, right? And you're selling it for 40 bucks a bottle, you know, you're looking at $25, you know, of profit on top of that. So times $12 per case times 200 cases. Now you're looking at that $60,000 mark. So boom, you can literally make five times less wine and make roughly the same amount of money. Now, the thing always, the thing that's always tricky though is, you know, you have these ebbs and flows of direct business as well as that wholesale business. You know, when the economy is in a lot of trouble, that direct business goes kind of through the floor. Uh, we've seen it through a couple of recessions or kind of the rumblings of recessions where all of a sudden you see where your wine club numbers just, whoo, there's a lot of attrition. They're, you're really having a tough time. This happened, um, you know, with the supply chain side of things and kind of post-COVID in 2022. Um, it was a really tough year for the direct side of things, at least for us, because uh, of rising costs specifically. And then you had a really kind of slow year in 2023. And you're like, okay, now we got to find ways to like make up for this. Meanwhile, if you have kind of that other arm of wholesale business, maybe that helps float you a little bit. You're not making nearly as much, you know, per bottle, but at least it's something to kind of supplement and keep the lights on and keep paying your bills. Um, it's it's a kind of a tricky game and you have to decide, you know, what kind of game you want to play. Uh, we had a really, a really great kind of in-depth conversation with a friend of ours, uh, not, I mean, a couple of days ago, uh, who's making about 10,000 cases of a Napa Cabernet. And then he's actually kind of doing just what we talked about in the uh, first question, where they're kind of saying, hey, this is the price point we want it to be at. We're just going to buy, you know, bulk wine and blend it ourselves. So it's being made by a bunch of other producers, and we're just kind of bringing it together. Uh, we've got a label for it, and we'll sell it to retail shops, we'll sell it to restaurants, and kind of whoever wants it. And if we do 10,000 cases of that, like maybe we're not making a lot of money per bottle, but we're selling enough bottles where it makes sense. So, I mean, let's take a, you know, like $5 bottle of wine. Let's say if you have a $5 bottle of wine, right? And it costs you, you know, let's say $4.50 to make that, right? So you're making 50 cents per bottle, but you're making 20,000 cases of it, right? So times 12 is you're making $6 a case times 20,000 cases. You're making 120 grand on that. I mean, that's a lot of wine to make, 20,000 cases. Uh, and at 50 cents a bottle, you're still clearing over 100K of profit on that. So, you know, when it comes to like distribution and, you know, the that volume game, you can work on those lower margins, but you have to produce more wine to really make it make financial sense again, depending on whether or not you want it to be like your full-time livelihood or you want it just to be kind of the passion project or hobby that makes you a few extra bucks. Uh, it's a big discussion that I think every wine brand should have if they haven't, um, and realistically they need to, to really figure out where they want to play within this industry. There's room for everybody. Um, there's folks like our friend who's making 10,000 cases. They're trying to do it as cheap as humanly possible, buying other people's leftovers, bottling up, slapping a label on it and saying, let's do this thing. Um, and they have a consulting winemaker that's helping make sure that's a good quality product. But they're not, 
buying the grapes. They're not buying the barrels. They're not doing all, any of this other stuff. Uh, you know, there's a it's a lot lower kind of barrier to entry in terms of the cost, and that helps kind of hit that specific price point and get it into distribution in, in a very advantageous way. You know, if you're buying a ton of Napa Cabernet at you know, $12,000 a ton above the Napa average, it's a very different conversation. You know, it's, you have to really kind of figure out what style of wine business you want to be. So why would you decide to be in distribution or not? It's really just a gut check of what style of business you want to be in. Do you want to play more of the wholesale kind of, you know, low margin, but higher volume game? Or do you want to be maybe, you know, more boutique and do smaller production, really high quality stuff that's great value for what it is, um, but go a little bit more of the direct route where you can actually make that make some financial sense, right? Like that's that's what it comes down to. Uh, the cost of doing business in this industry is very, very high. It's a slow burn to be successful in it, typically. Um, I mean, keep in mind that if you're you know, making a red wine in Napa from start to finish, it might be three years before you see any sales. So, you know, if you go right into distribution and you're not making a lot of wine and the margins are relatively low, it's going to take you a long time to recoup a lot of that upfront investment. Where if you're buying bulk wine and you're, you know, axing as much of those production costs as you can, you know, it can be a little quicker turnaround for you. Um, or you go the direct route and say, hey, well, we're going to really focus on quality instead of quantity, uh, because that is a huge sticking point for a lot of people. Uh, sometimes frankly, for larger productions, the quality of wine doesn't really matter. It just has to be good or good enough for that price point. Uh, they don't necessarily care what it is. They're just trying to make a buck. And if it sells, it sells. And that's what they care about. They're just purely about the dollars and cents. And that's a little bit of what that 10,000 case production I talked about. It's kind of what their MO is. They're like, we don't really care you know, what the quality is. It obviously has to be good enough. But as long as we hit this price point and there's a demand for it, we're just going to keep selling it. And if that starts to shift or doesn't work, then we'll just move on to the next thing. Um, they are, I mean, I love how honest and upfront they are about it. You know, you might not agree with that because it's kind of the shameless just cash grab. But hey, more power to you. If you can capitalize on that, have at it. Definitely not how I would do things. But it's why there's a little room for everybody in this industry. There's all kinds of routes that you can go um, or try and be kind of a hybrid of both of these things. Uh, that was kind of a long winding answer, but hopefully shed some light on kind of like wholesale versus, you know, direct business and, you know, dollars and cents when it comes down to it. Because these are businesses we're talking about. They got to pay the bills that they're incurring, right? All right. On a not so businessy note, I'm glad this question is in here. This is a nice palate cleanser to kind of Looks like we have enough time to finish this one. Maybe one more. We'll see how quickly we get through this. But this is a great palate cleanser to get away from the, the business talk of the wine industry. Uh, are the new wines that are in the cellar from 2023 still on the vintage of the decade path? Oh, I know. It's been probably, we did our, I think our 2022 kind of vintage review. Uh, since all those wines are now uh, going to be bottled up this year, we started talking about that uh, last month. If you want a little bit more insight in where uh, 2022 is, please feel free to go back to our uh, January episodes. And we have kind of a 2022 vintage like recap of where those wines are right now. Uh, they're tasting phenomenal. Spoiler alert. Um, but we really try and get into some good detail of those wines and kind of where they are and what to expect from them. 
As far as this newer vintage goes, though, uh, I am I am always, and I probably mentioned this in that previous episode as well, is that I'm always cautiously optimistic about new vintages because these wines, as esoteric as it might sound, they are kind of living, breathing things. Uh, there's some of you out there that have done some barrel tastings with me in the cellar. We've tried different vintages. Like, you know, there's these little bits of variation with every barrel that we make, uh, with every season, you know, we work with. And for me personally, I don't put a vintage of the decade stamp on anything until it's in bottle and ready to drink. So it's going to be a couple of years for me until I can confidently say that. But I will tell you this, that in a comparison between where 2022 was, you know, the year before, in its life cycle, so this time last year, you know, the 2022s are the new kids on the block, and they were feisty, man. They had, there's a lot of work to be done. There was a lot of stuff that we're just like, man, this is taken, this, it was work last year to make the 2022 vintage kind of really get to where it is today. It was a lot of hard work and there's now a lot of really fantastic wines coming from it, but it was a chore and frankly stressful. It was a it was a tough winter last year. Interestingly enough, the 2023s ha- are just like cruise control. They they it's still a lot of work and there's a lot of things that we, you know, have to do to make sure they stay on the right path, but realistically, it's been very stress-free. Um, everybody that I talked to is, man, the 22s were this chore. Uh, they were kind of that problem child vintage, but they, they now taste great because we've really tried to work on them. And now the 23s are like just a, a couple of months ahead of where the 22s are. Like they, they're just off to a faster start in terms of their quality and their complexity, uh, which is, which always bodes well for the future. So Will 2023 truly be like that vintage of the decade? Some people are saying vintage of the century. And I'm like, dude, it's been, we're not even a quarter through the century. Like, calm down. I appreciate the excitement, but let's, you know, you're about, you're about meow. You need to be about meow. You know what I mean? Just chill out for a second. Um, They're going to be great. Um, We haven't had, you know, a tough, really hard vintage, in my opinion, since 2020, Uh, because of the fires, obviously kind of a crazy circumstance that we had to deal with. Um, And before that, a lot of people kind of, you know, earmarked 2011 as like the last quote, like bad vintage we had. And some of those wines turned out to be phenomenal. Uh, Even from the rougher vintages around Napa and Northern California, you still find some amazing gems. Uh, So will 2023 get there and be that vintage of the decade? It has all the potential of the world. Uh, all we need to do as winemakers is not squander that opportunity. That's why I'm always cautiously optimistic because we'll see how the barrel programs integrate. We're going to see how the blending goes down and if they really comes to fruition. Because right now, all the individual parts, kind of the spice rack of different wines and different lots that we've created from Harvest are amazing in their own right. But we need to see how they meld and come together over the next year, year and a half uh, before we start getting too excited. So again, cautiously optimistic, but everything is off on just an amazing, amazing path. Uh, basically, I mean, if you're if you're buying in the interest, of, if you're buying Napa wine between 2021, two, and what's going to be coming from 2023, there's going to be a lot of good wine to drink from the early 2020s. Uh, all three of these vintages have just been rock star, in, as far as I'm concerned, very very solid, uh, which is just a blessing. It makes our lives a lot easier and less stressful, which is pretty nice, right?
All right, with that, we're right up against it. So we'll hold off on any other questions for now. Uh, but please, if you have any questions that you would like featured in our Q&A episodes, again, we do these at the end of every month. Uh, to do kind of this mailbag episode and try and answer as many as we can. We typically get through, you know, four to six different questions uh, regarding the wine business, winemaking, hospitality, all this other good stuff. And it's all kind of culminates uh, in these kind of from the other episode. They're all kind of pulled from the other episodes we do throughout the month. Uh, you can slide into our DMs on any of the social networks that I mentioned at MTGA Wines on YouTube twitter facebook instagram uh, you can also go to our website that's mtgawines.com there if you scroll down to the bottom of the homepage, there's a little email form there that you can send us a note uh, and let us know what question you would like answered on the show here uh, thank you all so much again for rating and reviewing the show for sharing it with other wine loving friends happy leap day everybody have an excellent february 29th and we'll see you next week on the Wind Up Podcast. We'll see you later.